0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church on this not quite lovely November morning, a little overcast today. Uh, we are so glad that you are here, whether you are joining us in person or online, we are grateful for your presence. I want to say a special word of welcome to anyone visiting with us today. We are particularly glad that you are here and hope that you will participate in all aspects of our worship service, including communion. We celebrate communion here at Northminster every week. Uh, There are instructions in your order of worship on the insert if you are new with us and don't quite know how we take communion. Or you can just follow the people around you, they won't lead you wrong. And if you are in need of a gluten free wafer, we do have those available. Just get my attention when you come up, and I'll make sure you get one of those. I hope that you will stay after church today uh, because today is a special day. Um, We are concluding the second day of the 2023 Strickland Lectures. So we have a special guest with us today, Amanda Tyler is here. Uh, I'll tell you more about Amanda in just a minute, but I also want to recognize we are joined by several members of the Strickland family. Mary Strickland McCamlish is here and brought in something wonderful looking with marshmallows on it for lunch. Also Hal, his wife Patty, and daughter Julia are here, and we are glad to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Um, you will notice the beautiful flowers today. I've been told they are specifically in ULM colors. Um, and Mary, those were, those were your, I don't know, yes it was, by the family. Um, it's our tradition of course, that people take flowers at the end of the service to brighten your day or someone else's. Please do give the family the first opportunity to get what they would like. If it's okay, whatever you don't take, the rest of the congregation will, Um, and just make sure they get first dibs at those flowers, if you would. You will also notice uh, in your order of worship that we are having lunch today to continue our celebration of the lectures. Uh, That is open for everyone, even if you didn't bring anything. We have so much food. Please stay and help it be eaten. Uh, You noticed the table when you came in. We will start lunch as soon as worship is over. And then tonight at 6 p.m., we have a business meeting. This one is important, as we will be voting on three new coordinating council members. Uh, There will be no potluck dinner, because we're having lunch together. And then next week, on the 19th at 6 p.m., is our agape meal, which is a Thanksgiving meal in which we gather together and give thanks. Uh, If you have not signed up for that, please do that today. We have got to get the numbers to the caterer so they know how much food to make for us, so please make sure you do that today. But I want to introduce you to Amanda Tyler, our special guest. Amanda Tyler is the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee and has been Executive Director since 2017 The BJC is the leading organ, and she leads an organization um, that upholds the historic Baptist principles of religious liberty, defending the free exercise of religion and protecting against its establishment by the government. She is the lead organizer of the BJC's Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign and co host of the BJC's Respecting Religions podcast. Amanda uh, is a constitutional law, her law analysis and advocacy for faith and freedom for all have been featured by major news outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS News, ABC News, CNN, and MSNBC. Religion News Service named Amanda one of 2022's rising stars in religion and she regularly preaches in Baptist churches, speaks at denominational gatherings, and lead sessions on college campuses, and with community groups of all sizes. Amanda is a member of the Texas and US Supreme Court Bar, and has experience working in Congress, in the private legal practice, and served as a law clerk for a federal judge. She graduated from the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University with a bachelor's degree in foreign service, magna cum laude and received her law degree with honors from the University of Texas Law School. In 2019, the school named her their Outstanding Young Alumna. She now lives in Dallas with her husband, Robert, and their son, and she is a Texas girl, so you know she's good people. (laughs) Now, uh, you will have the chance to welcome Amanda if you've not met her already after the service. She will be preaching today, so I hope you are looking forward to that. But now, with all of that said, with all of our announcements made, I'd like to ask you to take a deep breath. And I ask this of you, we do this here every week. We take this deep breath because, as a society, we're not very good at slowing down. We are constantly stimulated by all sorts of things, including the computers in our pockets. And we don't always take the time to recognize the special moments that we have together. So take that deep breath. Breathe from your diaphragm, from your belly, like a musician. And as you breathe in, breathe in the joy of this good place. Breathe in the love of being surrounded by people who accept you just as you are. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out your distractions as best you can. Breathe out anything that would keep you from being able to celebrate this time that we have together. Breathe in one more time. Know that you are loved by God as you are. And then, if you would, please join me in our call to worship, which is printed on the front of your order of worship. Let us speak of mercy and justice. These things suitable for our God. Let us follow the ways of mercy and justice, for they are the ways of peace and community. In just a moment, we will hear a reading from the prophet Amos, but before we do, we thought it was helpful for us to hear from a contemporary prophet, as we talk about justice today, Martin Luther King Jr. So please hear these quotes from a letter from the Birmingham jail. Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power is at its best. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice, as its best, is power correcting everything that stands against love. This next quote you will be familiar with: Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. And then finally this one. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? He said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despise, despise, despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice, when he said, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel when he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus? Was not Martin Luther an extremist when he said, Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. And John Bunyan, who said, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive, half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps for the South, the nation, and the world, we are in dire need of creative extremists. And now if you would, please pray with me. God of love and justice and freedom, you are personally invested in your creation and we give you thanks for your attention and care. We are grateful that you not only take notice of us, but that you come to be with us, close by and interested in how we live. We remember today those who feel alone as if no one cares, and pray that your presence would be made known to them. We pray for all those who think no one is paying attention, and so it doesn't matter what they do or how they feel or whether they're here. We ask that you would be visible, and your love so obvious that they can't help but notice and know that they are beloved, wanted, and that they belong. We remember today all those people who don't have the luxury of Sabbath, who labor for others' profit, who have no choice but to keep working or to go hungry, who long for a day off but can't make ends meet. May your abundance be a reality so that all people can experience the freedom of your kingdom. We remember today those who have been victims of others' greed, who have lost lives, livelihoods, family, or friends to violence or jealousy, and those who were unlucky enough to be at the bottom of the pile when the system is rigged against them. May your justice turn the world upside down and bring hope to those in despair and a future to those who see no way forward. We remember today those who are caught in the ways of this world, who can't imagine anything other than the way we've always done it, and who want to believe that with you all things are possible, but just don't see it. Reveal yourself in your kingdom of justice and peace, your way of life that overcomes death, your truth that changes everything. And remind us again and again of our part in your story. Teach us to love you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and to live as if your kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
1: Amos, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These are complex words that highlight God's desire for justice. Thanks. Thanks be to God.
2: Well, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Well, as Jillian said, we have two texts to orient our thinking and reflection this morning. One from the prophetic writings of our Holy Scripture in the Hebrew Bible, and one from a modern-day prophet with a clarion call for justice. Our lectionary section this morning comes from the book of Amos. But before we get to our text, a little context is always helpful. This short book consists of nine chapters and is largely a collection of the speeches and pronouncements of Amos, a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees from the countryside south of Bethlehem. Now, a quick aside, I will confess to you all that I had no idea what a dresser of sycamore trees meant, (laughs) so I looked it up. Thank you, Google. It's an agricultural term for the process of pruning the thin stalks of the fig mulberry tree in order to help ripen the fruit more quickly and keep them from being destroyed by insects. So now you know too. In other words, Amos was a layperson, not a priest. Who was called by the Lord to prophesy to the people of Israel and Judah? Amos, the book tells us, prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel, probably around the year 760 BCE. Now, these were relatively peaceful times for Israel, but also a time of great inequality, with the few rich getting much richer at the expense of the many poor. Old Testament scholar Gene Tucker describes the book this way. The message of Amos is direct and uncompromising. Over and over, he announces to the people of Israel that because of their social injustice and religious arrogance, the Lord will punish them by means of a total military disaster. Well, our passage today comes from the middle of the book, from the fifth chapter, starting in verse 18, and it starts with a word of lament and grief. Alas, Amos grieves for the people who are facing this disaster. Be careful what you wish for, he says. They yearn for the day of the Lord, thinking that their enemies will be vanquished when it is really their judgment day that is to come. And then Amos, speaking for the Lord, does not mince his words. The Lord says through Amos, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. Amos, this herdsman, this farmer, is speaking directly to the religious establishment on behalf of God, saying, I want no part of this. Stop with the performative worship and tributes. So what does God want instead? But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This beautiful, poetic verse is the crescendo of this passage. Justice and righteousness are familiar words and themes throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, but Amos draws the readers' and listeners' attention to this verse in a new, surprising, and very effective way. Hebrew scholar Ronald Hyman notes that justice and righteousness are paired more than 40 times in the Hebrew Scriptures— so these words were very familiar to Amos's listener. Dr. Hyman describes the verse this way, quote, Amos 524 elevates the concept of social justice and the actions embodying that concept to primacy in the lives of believers in the Lord, with whom the Hebrews have a traditional covenant dating back to Abraham. Abraham is, I'm sorry, Amos is not a radical. On the contrary, in his prophecies, he is part of his people's traditions. End quote. In other words, Amos is speaking words and themes that they recognize but have neglected in favor of their privilege and their comfort. The entire book of Amos, and this passage in particular, were very influential in the public ministry and advocacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When studying for his doctorate in 1952-1953, King made these notes on a little note card about Amos 5, 21 24. He wrote, this passage might be called the key passage of the entire book. It reveals the deep ethical nature of God. God is a God that demands justice rather than sacrifice, righteousness rather than ritual. The most elaborate worship is but an insult to God when offered by those who have no mind to conform to God's ethical demands. Certainly, this is one of the most noble ideas ever uttered by the human mind. King goes on in his writing, One may raise the question as to whether Amos was against all ritual and sacrifice, i.e. worship, I think not. It seems to me that Amos' concern is the ever-present tendency to make ritual and sacrifice a substitute for ethical living. Unless a man's heart is right, Amos seems to be saying, the external forms of worship mean nothing. God is a God that demands justice, and sacrifice can never be a substitute for it. Who can disagree with such a notion? End quote. Well, 10 years after his studies and after these writings where King reflected on Amos, the text remained a pivotal one for King. And he included it, as we heard, in his letter from the Birmingham jail. Well, I believe that this letter should be required reading in every civics classroom in this country. But I didn't read it as a high school student or even as a college student. I read, first read this whole letter as a first-year attorney when a partner in the Dallas law firm where I worked circulated by email in the firm on Martin Luther King Day, as was his custom. And I'm grateful for that mentor and friend who introduced me to this majestic, patriotic, and challenging text. In a new biography titled King, a Life, writer Jonathan Eig describes how King is a that this letter from King is a response to a statement issued by eight white clergymen in Birmingham that had been published in the Birmingham paper on the day after King's arrest. The white clergymen called on black citizens to quote, withdraw support from these demonstrations and instead unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. The ministers went on to write, we recognize the natural impatience of people who feel their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. Well, King read this statement from solitary confinement in the Birmingham jail. After his arrest on Good Friday, 1963, for leading a nonviolent protest march, as part of the larger Birmingham civil rights campaign, IG writes The clergymen considered their message a plea for cooperation, moderation, and reason. But King, who read the statement under the weak glare of his jail cell's light bulb, became disturbed. IG goes on As King's mind spun, he set to work. He wrote on the margins of the newspaper, and when he ran out of room in the newspaper margins, he scribbled on napkins and toilet paper. Sometimes he used the paper in which his sandwiches had been wrapped. Well, we heard some excerpts from it this morning, but the entire letter is approximately 7,000 words long, or more than twice as long as the entire book of Amos. To give you an idea of its length, if I were to read the entire letter this morning instead of preaching this sermon, we would be here for 50 minutes. We obviously don't have time for that, but I do want to share this extended excerpt that is particularly searing and pertinent to our current context. King writes, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. I had this strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church— I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained-glass windows. King continues, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to say about. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. King wrote, Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak and effectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people every day (laughs) whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Therein ends this reading. But please take some time this week just to sit and read his entire letter. It is truly magnificent. I believe that Amos and King are both considered prophets, not only because they were willing to speak uncomfortable truth to power, but because in hindsight, we can see that their predictions about the future were fulfilled. Forty years after Amos prophesied, the Assyrians invaded and the kingdom of Israel came to an end. Israel suffered the total military defeat that Amos predicted. And 60 years after King wrote, which is today, we see ongoing injustice alongside the weakening of religious institutions and how each subsequent generation has become less loyal and more disgusted by the irrelevance and hypocrisy that they see reflected in religious and specifically Christian institutions. So what are these two prophets? One from 8th century B.C.E. Palestine, one from the 20th century United States telling us today. For one, our worship, however meaningful, however beautiful, however fulfilling to our souls it may be, is just not enough. What we do on Sunday mornings is meaningless if we aren't working for justice and righteousness the rest of every week, every month, every year of our lives. God's desire for social justice is non-negotiable. And in our, in our world today is just as much in need of justice as was the world in which Amos and King prophesied. We live in a time of extreme inequality and extreme injustice that demands our active and, yes, extremist engagement. But our response must always be nonviolent. Those on the side of injustice and inequality are using extreme measures to hold on to their power at any cost, including violence. White supremacists are killing people in supermarkets, churches, and synagogues. Far-right extremists attacked the U.S. Capitol to try to overturn the results of the presidential election and threaten state houses around the country. And the threat of political violence only continues to grow. According to a new poll released by PRRI just a couple of weeks ago, quote, today, nearly a quarter of Americans, 23%, agree with this statement because things have gotten so off track true american patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country that's up from 15 percent in 2021. PRRI has asked this question in eight separate surveys since march 2021 and this is the first time that support for political violence has peaked above 20 percent the world powers that be want us to be moderate to be moderated and controlled by the status quo. That's the dangerous allure of Christian nationalism that domesticates the power of Christianity into the small box of the nation. A few years ago, I talked with Walter Brueggemann, one of the most influential Christian theologians and scholars of our time, who has concentrated particularly on the prophetic tradition. And he commented on how Christian nationalism, quote, makes God a captive and domesticates God. And when God is domesticated, it really leaves us without hope. What's going on in U.S. politics is essentially a politics of despair in which we believe that nothing radically good can happen. And therefore, it's a scramble to get as many of the marbles in our pocket before the game ends. But that's a no-win strategy because in the long run, it diminishes everyone's life, those who are at the top of the heap and those who are underneath them. So what can our prophetic tradition teach us about how we will respond today? Dr. Brueggemann said, I think we have to be working at the reform of the church so that the church community really becomes a place of truth-speaking rather than privatized otherworldly stuff. I think we have to be politically active. I think we have to be on the streets in protest. I think we have to be performing the truth that is entrusted to us in every way that we have the courage to do. In the words of King, when will the church stop being a mere thermometer of our society and system and start being the thermostat that can transform the conditions of our society? How can we dismantle the insidious ideology of Christian nationalism that keeps the church from realizing this true calling? And can we do it together before the world as we know it is destroyed? That's the prophetic question of our time. We are living in an extreme moment, and one that calls us to be extremists. Extremists for justice, extremists for love, extremists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it be so.